Hello everyone. Um, the treatise Sodolam, the foundation of the world, constitutes the core of my current research project with Dr. Israel Zanman at UCL, which is funded by the European Research Council, ERC, and directed by Professor Sasha Stern. Israel and I are preparing a book which includes an edition, a translation, a commentary, and a lexicon of Book 1 in Yesodolam, which is predominantly a mathematical book. In the Jewish year 5070, which corresponds to 1309 or 10, we don't know the months, the Hebrew month, um, Isaac Israeli ben Joseph from Toledo, also known as Isaac Israeli the Younger, composed an extensive treatise on the Jewish calendar, Yesodolam, which was, was of a very high scientific level for its time. This text aims to provide all the scientific knowledge required for the deep understanding of the Jewish calendar. It does not merely lay out the basic calendrical principles, which can be summarized in a few folios, but instead it proposes a quasi-encyclopedia of scientific knowledge in fields related to the study of the Jewish calendar, such as mathematics, geography, cosmology and astronomy. According to its introduction, Yesodolam was written at the behest of Rabbi Asher ben Yechiel, the Rosh, the chief rabbi of Toledo who had fled persecutions in Germany. Yesodolam comprises five books. Book one, as mentioned, focuses on mathematics. Books two and three are on cosmology, geography, but mainly astronomy. The astronomical themes relate solely to the sun and the moon, the two heavenly bodies relevant to the Jewish calendar. The months are lunar, and in seven out of 19 years, an additional intercalary 13 months is added to the Jewish year in order to harmonize it with a solar year, thus ensuring that the Jewish festivals are celebrated in the right season. Books four and five in Yesodolam are dedicated to the Jewish calendar and Jewish chronology with some materials related to the Christian and Muslim calendars too. Visual elements serving didactic purposes are abundant in Yesodolam. They include diagrams and tables, as well as the use of colour in some manuscripts, mainly red colour, Following Greek and Arabic scientific traditions, diagrams in Hebrew manuscripts serve as a means to help the reader gain better understanding of the often complicated theories within the body of the text. Furthermore, diagrams were a common way for the author to prove the veracity of the scientific claim within the text. This abundance of tables in Yesodolam, over 50, is unprecedented in the medieval Hebrew calendrical genre. Even when we compare it with the rather, rather sophisticated calendrical treatise by the 12th century astronomer and mathematician Abraham Balchaya, which was part of our previous AHRC research project. This abundance of tables is most likely the result of the influence of Arabic and Latin scientific traditions of the 13th and 14th centuries in the Iberian Peninsula, in particular the astronomical tradition in Toledo, 
as manifest, for example, in the 13th century Alphonsine tables. The tables in Isodolam contain useful astronomical, calendrical, geographical and mathematical information, thus liberating the users from the need to make their own calculations. The last phrase, however, or sentence, is my own rather gentle formulation of the matter. The truth is that Israeli himself does not shy from saying, for example, in Book 5, Chapter 19, that the table on the types of years in the Jewish calendar was made for, and I quote, the person who lazes himself and does not wish to bother himself with learning and understanding the theories which the author had explained earlier in the book. This rather condescending attitude towards the reader was quite prevalent in the medieval Hebrew scientific tradition, with some exceptions, fortunately, such as my first medieval friend, Isaac ben Solomon ibn al-Akhtar. The transmission of Yesodolam spans over half a millennium. It includes 53 manuscripts, two printed editions from Berlin, and the first one by Sklover, in print, printed in 1777, and the second one by Goldberg, Goldberg and Rosenkranz, was, which was printed in 1848. There is also a tiny fragment of Byzantine origin, which I discovered in the Cairo Geniza collection, thanks to one trigonometrical term I knew was part of Isaac Israeli's mathematical jargon. The term is Beka, or Beka Keshet Ashlum. Um, it is important to, to know that there, is, uh, there was little lexical stability in the medieval Hebrew language, which makes the whole history of the scientific, medieval Hebrew scientific language makes it very, very interesting. Um, so, we have 54 manuscripts, and this is the most impressive number for a Hebrew scientific treatise composed in the Iberian Peninsula before the expulsion and forced conversion to Christianity of the Jews in Spain and Portugal in 1492 and 1496, because uh, everything started in December of 96, respectively. Out of purely probabilistic considerations, it would not seem exaggerated to say that Israeli's work was most probably a seminal scientific treatise in medieval, in medieval and early modern, um, early modern Jewish circles. The dozens of compendia, compendia, commentaries and other treatises related to or inspired by Sodolam seem to corroborate this claim. The chain of manuscript tr um, transmission of Sodolam includes many a provenance and various hands, Sephardic, that is stemming from the Iberian Peninsula, Oriental, Byzantine, Italian, and Ashkenazic, that is German. Yesodolam is a rich text able to quench various types of intellectual thirst, be it literary, calendrical, scientific, or linguistic. The focus of my own research has been the analysis of Book One, in particular the mathematical terminology within, the visual elements in their transmission, and most importantly, the mathematical contents and their contribution to the history of Hebrew science in the Middle Ages. In the lecture today, I shall present a few highlights of my research. 
and will discuss the role of mathematics in this Odolam, as perceived by Isaac Israeli, and as it is of great interest to the history of Hebrew mathematics, I wish to share with you my findings in regard to the partial transmission of Euclid's elements found in Book 1. So first of all, a few words on the Jewish calendar for those of you who may not be familiar with it, so very tiny, so 60 seconds or 58 seconds on the Jewish calendar. It is a non-linear calendrical scheme which intricately combines astronomical verity, for example, true length of lunations and seasons, with mathematical patterns, formula for the calculation of the molad, the new moon, while observing strict religious rules. For example, the Jewish New Year must not be celebrated on Sunday, Wednesday, sorry, Sunday, Wednesday or Friday. <coughs> Mathematically, much of what we look for really boils down to when within the week something or um, uh, calendrical events happen, be it the Molad, the Moon, um, or the Tkufa, the seasonal turning points, that is um, solstices and equinoxes. Now, let's turn to Book 1 and gain better resolution of it. Arithmetic is one of three mathematical fields we encounter in Book 1. For example, one is the basis of all numbers, the definition of ratios and how to deal with three or four proportional numbers. The second subject is geometry, Euclidean planar geometry, as well as the definition of a solid. The third domain is trigonometry, planar and spherical. However, we do not find any basic arithmetic. Israeli does not revert to um, Hebrew arithmetical traditions of the 12th century, such as the materials in Abraham Ibn Ezra's most prominent Sefer HaMispar, the book on the number, a rudimentary text on the five basic arithmetical operations. And this is the order, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction, and extraction of roots. The first three operations are necessary um, sorry, so um, it is addition, multiplication, um, and subtractions, which are necessary operations for the calculation of the Jewish uh, calendar, and only these three operations, so it seems. Um, I suspect that Israeli um, didn't include these materials because he took for granted that everybody, no matter how lazy or ignorant they were, could still deal with such basic, basic math. I mean, we're in the 14th century, so that's quite reasonable to assume. Um, I claim that Israeli was solely concerned with the more sophisticated mathematics required for astronomy. He emphasizes the need of mathematics for the sake of the study of astronomy rather than directly for the sake of the calendar. Well, astronomy is the key to understanding the calendar, and mathematics is a prerequisite for astronomy. Thus, by transitivity, we obtain that mathematics is necessary for the study of the calendar. Now, let us look at the following excerpts um, in order to gain better understanding of Israeli's Weltanschauung on the matter, when he describes Ptolemy's Almagest, and then a parable about the intellectual position, if I may say I'm not 
sure this is that's the best word I could come with, intellectual position of his own readers. So let's see what he says. So now, approximately 70, or one we have a version with 75 years after the destruction of the um, Second Temple, that's 70 AD, the sage Ptolemy arose among the nations. For a short time, he was before our holy rabbi, Judah the prince, and he intelligized much in the science of astronomy, bringing to light its hidden aspect. On it, he composed his magnum opus, um, entitled El Majesty, in which he slings with a stone of his intellect at each and every one of the topics of this discipline to a hair breadth, and does not miss. From then to now, all who came after him learned from this book, from his book. Each man beholds within it, but it is not able to understand its word, to enter into its chambers of its hidden matters, except for he who has endeavoured and first learned and intelligized, notice, the science of geometry and the science of arithmetic. However, he who was lazy and did not merit to learn and intelligize these two sciences, yet his heart has moved him to know about the science of astronomy enough to suffice him to understand and intelligize the reasons of the foundations of the calendar and its esoterica. Let him first of all dedicate himself and focus his heart to learn and intelligize what I shall set forth and arrange in this book. In it he will find all his need and will prosper in his way. Surely he will not be as the man who was wandering in the fields, hungry and thirsty. Hither and thither he walks about until he reached the king's garden. Now he is agitated to arrive there to eat and fill his stomach with the fruit of the garden and its dainties. But the watchmen and gatekeepers rose up against him and closed the garden's gate before him. They disquieted him, and in anger and wrath they drove him from there, for he was not acquainted with them, and they were not acquainted with him. They did not give him leave even to look, so he turned from there, sad and dejected, worn out and weary. When one of the men of the garden ran to him quickly, saying to him, Peace upon you, have no fear, maintain your station, and I shall provide dainties for your soul. So he returned to the garden and filled his bosom with all excellent fruit, both new and old, which he gave to him, whereupon he ate. He brought to him wine and he drank. He did not turn from gathering the fruit of the garden and taking them out to him, giving him to taste and giving him to eat, until he satiated his sated his long soul, and that was counted to him an act of righteousness. Now regarding that wandering man, although his hunger did not did depart, and he did fill his stomach, how can his mind be at rest within him, since he did not enter the garden? He did not eat of its good his hands did not touch its trees, he did not gather its chief spices, and neither did he drink of the wine preserved in its grapes. Thus is the parable about the learner from this book, yeah, I mean to say that from it 
he will understand and intelligize the reasons of the foundation of the calendar and he will attain them. And from it he will understand, or alternatively um, learn and know, the wonders of its esoterica. So you get some understanding of the way he... So in other words, people who are going to read Yesodolam, they are not going to be like people who actually studied all the mathematics necessary for astronomy and uh, etc. But they will get, I mean, yeah, they'll be like the person sitting outside the garden having eaten from its fruit but haven't really gone into that garden. I find it really, really beautiful. And the Hebrew is absolutely beautiful and touching. I mean, very nice. Now I would like to say a few words on Euclidean geometry, much present in Yesodolam. Euclid's Elements is a seminal Greek mathematical treatise composed around the year 300 BCE, and it has a long and complex history. The Elements became a mathematical bestseller in the ancient world um, and in the Middle Ages throughout the modern period, and it was translated into Arabic, Latin, Hebrew, and many other languages. It is being taught, at least partially, even in schools today. You might be amused to know that during the 14th and 15th centuries, uh, the study of at least two of the books of the elements was mandatory for all students, both at Cambridge and Oxford University. I believe there's no harm to extend this requirement to 21st UCL. I don't know how my suggestion will be accepted. Um, what is slightly more important for our context is to know that in the medieval Hebrew scientific library, Euclid's elements were translated from the Arabic in the 13th century by Moses ibn Tibon, Jacob ben Machir, um, and also um, Judah Solomon Cohen incorporated Euclidean books in his scientific encyclopedia, Midrash al-Chuchmah. So what are the building blocks of the elements? We find definitions of mathematical entities, for example, a point is that which has no part. I'm following uh, Heath's trans English translation. We also find axioms, um, that is, mathematical claims that cannot be proved. Geometrical axioms are called postulates, and general principles are called common notions. For example, um, in Book 1, Postulate 1, to draw a straight line from any point to any other point is a postulate, whereas things which are equal to the same thing are also equal to one another, is a common notion. Yeah, but both are axioms in our modern language. Um, apart from definitions, postulates and common notions, the elements include propositions, which are claims followed by proof based on the definitions, postulates and common notions. There are two types of propositions. The first one are propositions which outline how to do something. Uh, for example, how to draw an uh, equilateral triangle. Yeah, for, that's book one, proposition one uh, in Euclid. Um, and then at the end of whose proof, uh, you would write, like in Latin version, and also, uh, QEF, quod erat faciendum. The second type of proposition, uh, propositions contains a um, theoretical claim. Uh, for example, the Pythagorean theorem 
In right angle triangles, the square of the sides subtending the right angle is equal to the squares of the side containing the right um, angle. That is Euclid Elements Book 1, Proposition 47. <coughs> Sorry. Um, there are 13 books in the elements. In antiquity, actually, 15 books have been attributed to Euclid, uh, but that's a long story, not for today. Um, in a nutshell, I will say that one could subdivide the elements into three categories, but again, it's not a simple story. There's, there are other possibilities, but just to give you a very, very quick um, view. So books one to four on uh, planar geometry, so point, you know, definition and, uh, of points and lines, angles, uh, triangles, quadrilaterals, parallelograms, and so on, with the corresponding um, common notions and um, propositions. Uh, books five to ten, ratios and proportions, um, number theory and number theory, which we find there are ratios between numbers and lines, um, and then um, ratios and, and proportions, so ratios which are equal to each other um, would be considered as proportions. And then books 11 to 13 deal with spatial geometry, that is solid or 3D figures, uh, for example, the platonic uh, solids. Here we see a very um, concise map of the Euclidean elements uh, of the elements, which we find in Yesodolam, which is clearly a partial, very partial. Uh, those of you, I know, some of you know the um, elements very well. This is a very partial transmission. Um, but we notice that most of the materials in Yesodolam derive from Book 1 of the elements and concern plate, um, planar triangles and circles um, which are introductory elements for the study of spherical trigonometry, which in itself lies in the foundation of astronomical theories. Um, now, clearly, this partial transmission of the elements into this important Hebrew treatise was not meant as a transmission of Euclid per se, but as a teaching, uh, as, um, but teaching mathematical materials which are useful for the author's agenda. Yeah, teaching the calendar by first providing the astronomical um, materials, and then, of course, you need certain mathematical principles for them, for, for the study of astronomy. Here, I, I wanted, I mean, I didn't go into linguistic issues, or um, you don't need to read Hebrew, but, um, so, but I did want to show something, you know, a very concrete example uh, from um, Yesodolam, and uh, this is, in particular, this is the transmission of the Pythagorean theorem, which was mentioned uh, earlier. Um, so, this is actually the only case within the um, Euclidean propositions in Esodolam uh, where you find uh, Isaac Israeli justifying the necessity for this particular theorem uh, for the sake of astronomy. Yeah, so this is quite unique if you look at the other lessons or, or propositions that it's not the case. So let's have a look what it says. Um, um, lesson 28, or some versions 26. Uh, this is the, yeah, in Isodolam. Know that every right um, angle triangle, such as this triangle ABC, in which angle A is right, has a wondrous property. Pay attention to it, for you will need it much in the science of astronomy. It is that 
squares, uh, sorry, um, a square that which is built on its hypotenuse, yeah, there should be an indefinite article here, such as side BC in the figure, is equal in its area to the sum of the areas of the two squares which are built on its two remaining sides. Um, that is side AB and side AC, yeah? So... Um, so if you take AB squared plus BC squared, you should get AC squared. I hope you all remember that from school with joy and happiness, I hope. Um, so this is very interesting that this, I mean, this is of course a very useful uh, theory when you're looking on spheric, working on spherical triangles. Um, and this is... Uh, as I said, um, the only place within the actual transmission of Euclid that you see um, the justification. Now, after having uh, identified the partial transmission of Euclid's element, it was only by natural to ask what its origin was. Did it have anything to do with any other Hebrew sources of Euclid, in particular the classical translation from the Arabic um, of the, the elements translation in Provence during the 13th century by, as I mentioned before, Moses ibn Tibon and Jacob ibn Mechi, or perhaps even Shlomo Akohen, Yudaf uh, Shlomo Akohen. Um, I shall not keep you in suspense for long. The answer is no. I was able to show, by comparison of Israeli's language with that found in the other known Hebrew translations, that Israeli's transmission of the element is independent of them. So what was Israeli's source? Well, as suggested to me by François de Blois, this could have been an adoption of materials found in an Arabic siege book. But um, I have not been able to identify the source so far. If anyone in the audience uh, happens to know an Arabic source which um, contains the same Euclidean or similar uh, Euclidean transmission, um, I shall be most grateful to know. In conclusion, today I've shown uh, some of the aspects of the role of mathematics, uh, uh, sorry, the role that mathematics plays in Isaac Israelis' Yesodolam, and that mathematical knowledge is indispensable for the understanding of astronomy, which in itself is necessary for those who wish to master the principles of the Jewish calendar. Furthermore, among all the mathematical materials found in Book 1, we discern a partial transmission of Euclid's elements, which is not related to the classical Hebrew translations um, of scientific works into Hebrew during the 13th century. This independent, non-classical transmission of the element, um, partial transmission, of course, um, constitutes an important chapter in the history of Hebrew Euclid, a long story whose pages need to be filled yet. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Lana. Yes, and the chair. Oh. Um, you said something about um, the silver lung containing chronology. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about it for a minute? Oh, um, so it would give important dates um, in the Jewish history. So, um, it would list the generations uh, from Adam and... So based on um, 
That's a good, I have to say, as I, as I mentioned, I focused on the study of book one, so I didn't go into, I didn't have time uh, to, but it's a really good question, so I hope to answer that one day. Maybe I should just oh. add about that, that this, this is 418, right? Yeah. The, and that particular chapter was copied very often independently, especially in later Ashkenazi manuscripts, so we have a whole bunch of fragments that are only... 418, with the whole transmission history of their own that needs to be studied, really independently, it's a whole project of its own. And uh, there are adaptations and extracts from it, and this, and it's, it's a big subject. Since you mentioned Ashkenazic transmission, I, w I want to draw your attention to the fact that um, in most, uh, if I remember correctly, of the Ashkenazic manuscripts, you don't, uh, or many of them, I don't want to sign on most, uh, you you only find book, books four and five, as it, like the first three books, you know, and the heavy scientific materials are not there, which tells you something about, you know, uh, either the intellectual uh, level of Ashkenazic um, communities in the 16th century, around that time, um, or also maybe they're, you know, um, they didn't find it important enough. Maybe they did understand it, but they just didn't think that it was so important. They really wanted to go straight to the part in the Jewish calendar, so that might be interesting to know. <laughs> More than Dorothy Monday. Yeah, here. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Um, very interesting. Uh, looking at that, um, he's not actually demonstrating, he's not translating the rigorous proof, he's just stating the results. I beg to differ. If you, I, I only brought here the, uh, the proposition itself, yes. but then it is being followed. Actually, if you look at the Hebrew, you can still see. So, um, okay, and then he says, so here he finishes his, uh, in this, oh, can you, sorry. Um, can you see the mouse? It's easier for me to see it here. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, now he says here, so he gives you the actual um, claim, the yeah, mathematical claim, proposition, the theorem. And then he says, So in order to um, uh, comment or explain it or explicate it um, by way of proof, yeah, uh, so he's uh, making all the necessary constructions, which actually, um, when you look at, um, at Euclid, um, it's very, very similar. So um, it's very important. So that's really important to know that he's not just giving you a list of the theorems, but the proof is there as well. So, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, is there any mention of Erastenes as well? Erastenes? Not, no, not here. I mean, it comes up in other Hebrew sources, but not, not here, yeah. So, uh, how to find prime numbers. And, oh, by the way, he was asking about a certain algorithm of how to, um, to find, uh, out of a group of numbers, those which are prime numbers, that is divisible only by themselves and by one. Um, and um, because it's not really relevant to astronomy, um, yeah, and I, I think that's the reason why you don't see it here. Um, mainly what you see is geometrical stuff. Yeah. This follows up on the uh, previous questions and your uh, comment. Mm -hmm. so I'm curious about the transmission history of the text. So you, says, you say you have 50 mm -hmm. 
or manuscripts, and the way you described it, for example, was it is um, the book itself would have a very natural progression from mathematics to astronomy to mm -hmm. the calendar. Exactly. You also have these parts which would not necessarily fit this progression, so you have um, geometry and uh, you have um, geography, geography yeah. which you would not necessarily need for that. So I'm wondering if in some manuscript you have a more streamlined version that builds from mathematics to astronomy through the calendar, or for your book, the first book itself would mm -hmm. work as a prime on mathematics. You do, so you don't necessarily need the other. So would would say the, the first book have a separate life on its own in, in the transmission history? I really so like your question. Or do you have a more oh. version of the text towards mm -hmm. uh, calendrical science? Um, so I'm, I'm curious about how stable the transmission history is or if, if, if it's used for other purposes than the original books. Not that I know. In particular, I can say one or two things. There's one manuscript that we weren't able to get copies of, but I saw in the Microfilm Institute in Jerusalem where actually this was done. Only select lessons were copied, and even according to this numbering, and then others were left out. But that's rare. That was a later manuscript. That's a, that's rare. As a rule, most of the things were copied as they are. Ge geometry does become. Uh, sorry, geography does become relevant later on in determining various factors. Uh, there were certain places where only only the mathematical or the astronomical sections were copied, and they didn't bother copying the calendar part. Okay. And also, you know, that, that's, yeah, uh, you have that as well. Yeah. But but I think also in terms of whether the book one in itself could stand as a, as a primer in, in mathematics, that's a wonderful question. Um, it seems that certain elements are, well, not, not doing the pun here, um, are, are missing. So, also, um, also, it's not entirely clear when he gives you certain, like, why did he choose except precisely, you know, the list I was showing before of, of the proposition. So, um, I was thinking, oh, he could have also chosen this and that, you know. Um, it's not like a, I would say, like a rigid textbook, mathematical textbook in itself. It's not a it's not a bad one, you know, so if you just took it and tried to learn math from it, um, you could. But it's I wouldn't call it a, a perfect textbook. Uh, I this follows the two previous questions. Yeah. Did he come with new ideas or did he just describe and translate existing ideas from other other sources? No, um, there is no innovative material. There is, on the linguistic side, there are some interesting things, but when you look at the actual mathematics, there is nothing new under Israeli sun. Sasha. Yeah, thank you. We're crossing each other's questions all the time, but um, going back to uh, your point, yeah, my impression is that, um, and that's verified by the manuscript transmission, but my impression is that the Fuzzerlam was regarded as an integral literary work, and it was transmitted as such. There were plenty of uh, manuals about the Jewish calendar, for example, that were produced through the centuries. Mm -hmm. And if somebody wanted a concise manual calendar, there was no need to make an abridgment of his other alarm, which is anyway a very scholarly work. And the same applies to mathematics, really. If somebody only wanted mathematics, well, there was the Hebrew Euclid, and there were other so, um, I think basically that the only interest people had in transmitting the work was in preserving the work as an integral literary unit. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. Although, uh, we know that 
some cases they chopped out the calendar part completely. They just did books two and three or one two and three. So there are I don't know there have to be some qualifications. Yes, it was it was a self-standing work. There were works to go for other other works or other things. But nevertheless, people did choose certain the copy the the, the the historical chapter. Just the mathematical sections. So then, but these are not abridgments. Yeah, correct. They're not abridgments. It's just truncating work or just yeah. giving up on copying the whole thing. Or, or yes, <laughs> which seems to be the case. The first half and then yeah. the other half can wait. So, I don't know if it's going to wait, but they actually they had their part that they were interested in. Yes, yes. 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 Sure. Um, when do Hebrew mathematical manuscripts begin to use Arabic numerals? Ah, um, the first one was actually mentioned today, the first one we know. Uh, it's uh, Abraham ibn Ezra's Sefer HaMispar, the book on number. This is 12th century, um, and he's uh, presenting the, the Arabic uh, numerals um, and the uh, Galgal, which he, this is his own coining for zero, and also talking actually about the Indian origin of this. And But I do have to say, if I may, that you would think, okay, I think that in the 12th century, uh, most Jewish people would have known, would have learned about the um, Arabic numerals and, and the easy way to write numbers if you compare them to Roman or uh, the Roman system or uh, the alphanumerical uh, system. And yet, the book which uh, was my f uh, based on my doctorate, um, late 14th century Sicily, you see Ibn al-Akhtab transmitting an Arabic text, and um, he adds actually an introduction about the Arabic numerals. And all along, he combines all the systems, but it's quite clear, that at least for that, he was in Syracuse, in Sicily, um, at least for the community he was writing, that it wasn't obvious for them, yes, that, you know, this system wasn't known. And he, he, and many times you're, like, thinking, why is he doing all this cumbersome uh, alphanumerical notation, where he could have, once he introduces the Arabic numerals, he could have just used it all the way, and he doesn't. Because he, I think he wants to help his readers. They, it's like if I, if I told you, okay, there's a new law, tomorrow um, we stop using decimal um, base and we start using base 20. I think it will take us a bit of time to get used to, you know, writing everything, uh, yeah, or, or the binary base, yeah? So if, you, if we all have to think like computers now, um, it, I think we would need some time to adapt. And so what I'm trying to say is that even 200 years after... Um, the, the, a very massive um, uh, um, transmission of, of this arithmetical text by Ibn Ezra. Yeah, we know we have loads of manuscripts, um, and yet it wasn't known to everyone that late. I think we have time for actually. We'll try to squeeze two more questions, and Jonathan had a question. And then Sophie so, so has a good yeah. idea, and we'll, that will be slightly yeah, over 12, our time. 12, so, okay. 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 so I think you have things to say about the Hebrew terminology, the Hebrew mathematical terminology. So just Do you want me to stand here for the whole day? No, no, I don't want you to stand here for the I'd love to, but we don't have the time for that. So does he use his predecessor's language, or does he invent new terms? Or I what's... really love your question, and you. I'll use 30 seconds to answer. Uh, some of it he does, 
but mostly where arithmetical things, things that have already become rather stable. In the, um, but then uh, when it comes to trigonometry, it has this beautiful expression of uh, Beka, Beka Keshet, Beka Keshet Tashlum, it's biblical, I wrote a whole thing about this. Um, and that's, and, and he knew Abraham, uh, Balchia's work, uh, he knew um, Abraham ibn Ezra's work, he knew their um, definitions of Chatzieter, and, uh, and yet he decides to, to coin his own word. So it's a, um, a combination. I think he felt this um, mathematical freedom or linguistic freedom whenever the term was not you know, fixed in stone, which was the case for most terms. So, okay. I, Last yeah. I just have a very short question, maybe out of ignorance, but when you said that they started to use Arabic numerals, and, you know, do you mean Eastern or, or Western Arabic? Because I find so many times Eastern Arabic numerals in Orient, the manuscripts of Oriental Arabic. Actually, when you look also like um, different Oriental, te- I mean, I've seen quite a few, and you have everything, I mean, it's a mixture. So, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, very pleasurable, very enjoyable.